Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. From 1990 to 2006, I had an opportunity to interview Gore Vidal four times. This is the last of the four interviews recorded in November 2006 upon the release of his memoir, Point-to-Point Navigation. My guest is Gore Vidal, whose latest book is Point-to-Point Navigation, a memoir. Recent books include Imperial America, Screening History, and Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace, which is pretty much where I want to start because I think that's still going on despite a democratic victory in November. Well, you're quite right. It is still going on. There are two more years of the little president, as I call him, and he can do a fair amount of damage. Happily and unhappily for us, there's no money left. So his big plans, uh, you know, to take out Iran, I don't think he's going to be able to get away with it. Though he's dumb enough, you know, to just go in and start bombing. And then we're surprised by the suicide bombers that come to our cities. But... The Democrats have, you know, they, they have some opportunity. They'll have chairmanships of key committees, particularly John Conyers, which is Judiciary Committee. I mean, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I should think, probing of things done by the Justice Department during the regime of, um, of uh, the little president and uh, the little attorney general, who I think, have you listened to Gonzalo's voice? Well, it's Truman Capote all over again. I mean, he just, you know, everything is so quaint. And when I hear that voice, I, you know, I thought, you know, once Capote is, I don't mind they make movies about him because you don't have to see the movie. But uh, he's come back in some weird way, as Gonzalez, yeah. Anyway, I hope they get a thorough grilling before the Judiciary Committee, of which Mr. Conyers will be chairman. The other day, I watched your movie, The Best Man. Oh. I was fascinated by the comments in it and how it relates to what's going on today. You nailed swift boating in 1965. Well, politics is an unlovely game in the U.S. We did a revival on Broadway of the play in the year 2000, and it's all about a convention during which the next president is going to be decided. There's a bad guy, and there's a good guy, and there's an ex-president who is uh, going to be the balance of power. So we debated, and, you know, suddenly I realized this is not how presidents are chosen. They're not chosen at conventions. They're chosen in primaries by a great deal of money that's being spent. So finally the producer rather wisely said, just don't update it. Do it as you did it in 1960. I said, come on, this is 40 years later. He said it'll work, and it worked. They laughed in the same places as they did years earlier. And I was rather stunned because it made me a creationist that along with the presidency of George W. Bush. To have got from George Washington to George W. Bush makes a monkey out of Darwin. And I suddenly realized nothing advanced at all. 
There has been no change. It's more naked now, the stealing of money. The nakedness of K Street is, insofar as I know, fairly original. Well, it was working in President Harding's time, but no, that's the democratic way. It's, it's spread around evenly, you know, corruption. You've made the comment several times that this is a one-party system, the party of money, with two right wings, being the Democrats and the Republicans. That line kept coming back to me in 2000, because up until 2000, the difference between the two on certain issues may have been a little bit wider, but on most issues, it seemed like they weren't. And it seemed like with the election of Bush, things seemed to shift. That was uh, everyone's fear had been translated to reality that somebody totally incompetent, inept, uneducated, gets to be president of the United States because of his father. And big, big, big money. They've tapped all the big corporations in the country who have got their reward. The great corporations get paid off by, with tax cuts and so on. And Bush did what he was put in place to do. And as a reward to the moneyed corporations that had given him the presidency, he gave them two wars by just saying he wanted a war, is Gonzalez again, you know. The president has all these inherent rights as president, as commander-in-chief. He doesn't have any. This man has never read the Constitution. The president has enumerated rights. They're listed in the Constitution. It takes all of four minutes to read all of his powers. There is nothing inherent at all. Bush once said, I think, oh, the Constitution is just a piece of paper. Yeah, well, he's just a piece of something else. Gorbadal, you talk in various essays in Imperial America, in Perpetual War, and of course even in Point-to-Point -point Navigation about America heading toward fascism and away from whatever's left of democracy. And we've had this election. Should we be taking a sigh of relief? No, I think so. And I think the Democrats better rise to the occasion or they'll, they'll be booted out. No, the people do want change. They hate the war. And uh, I don't think they thought much about it, but those of us who fly a lot, I mean, this is you know, like the Soviet Union now. Everybody is treated as a potential terrorist. And they, they haven't ever caught a terrorist, really. They, they scoop up people at random. Then we find out if anybody can ever get to them through our cordoned ranks, that they're innocent. They were just being taking a walk one afternoon in Macedonia when the CIA arrested them and renditioned them to Syria. This is no way for a civilized country to behave, much less a republic like the United States, which had a bit of democracy. We never had much democracy because the founding fathers didn't like democracy. They, and they would love this regime, I'm sorry to say. You think? Of course. Well, they would hate it because it's lawless. And the founding fathers, it was John Adams who said, you know, we're a nation not of men, but of laws. Well, then, a few days ago, when they got rid of habeas corpus, which we've had for 700 years, going all the way back to Runnymede in England and to Magna Carta, that's the whole foundation of our state. And without that, we are nothing. We are helpless. We are drifting. We are a dictatorship. The president can lock up anybody he wants to and just say, he's a terrorist, he's aiding terrorism. I'm a wartime president. I'm a wartime president, wartime president. Why, none of the media fools, and I must say generically, I think of them just as a bunch of idiots and cowards, that they have not ever said, right after he has said something like that, uh, we should point out that uh, this is not a wartime president. This is a president using 
aggressive means to strike at countries he doesn't like. There, you can't have a war without a people, without a nation. Uh, then immediately you're supposed to say, hey, what about 9-11, boy? They came at us and we hit them back. Well, the dum-dums out there, I dress my fellow Americans properly, I think, dum-dums, because you fell for it, those of you who did, those of you who didn't, were paying attention. Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. Iraq had nothing to do, nor did Afghanistan, two innocent countries, because the president wanted a war, and the neoconservatives also wanted a war for dark reasons of their own. And we got one. You know, they'd gone around the American people. Constitution says only the House of Representatives can declare war. We went around the House. Did the House make a noise? No. They did some kind of wartime, uh, some sort of weird uh, motion was made. That seems to give him a little power, but the power is constitutional or nothing. Now, to let that go means that we let go of our country. I mean literally. There is no country there. And it's a very serious thing when two elections in a row are, are stolen, when civil liberties from the First Amendment to the Sixth Amendment are being abridged or eliminated. Why there was not a greater outcry, I don't know. I think part of it is the media is owned by the same corporations that bought the president and got us into the wars. So the media is never going to clarify for the people. What happened? Where do they go for information? Well, we have programs like this. We have magazines like The Nation and so on. These are overpowered by overpowering spin, spin, spin. And my favorite line that he does, we got to fight them over there, otherwise we're going to have to fight them here. <laughs> well, how are they going to get here? They're a long way away. They have no navy. And they can't afford ocean liners. You know, They just can't afford the passage. I mean, there is no lie that has not been told 2,000 times. And the airwaves keeps repeating what they say, repeating as though there's some truth in it. I keep thinking uh, about your comment about vote fraud. The Democrats squeak through. I'm convinced that there was still vote fraud and that the election might have been overwhelmingly Democratic. We'll never know because of the machines in places like Ohio and Florida. But nobody's going to talk about vote fraud. And I'm scared that in 2008, they can just go right back in and pull it out of their hands. Well, they've got they have a nice, nice time uh, period in which to perfect uh, stealing. And the word will be, when any objection is made, I remember when Gore was elected uh, president in 2000 by the popular vote. Well, the first thing out of the way, we got to move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Adolf Hitler, that's a good idea, Hitler. Reichstag fire was, it's been good to you, hasn't it? The thousand-year Reich lasted 12 years. The permanent one-party America lasted 12 years. Hopefully. Gore Vidal, let's talk a little about point-to-point -point navigation. It seemed to me that some of the impetus for writing this were the changes in your life, uh, the death of your uh, partner, Howard, and your move from Ravello back to um, Los Angeles. Well, I always had a house in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know that. But. It's just sort of insurance. I knew that one day Howard and I were going to, the Cedars-Sinai years were approaching, and we would need to be near proper hospitals, 
so we always had the house. And then he died, and uh, uh, cancer is a very ugly thing. And he was a lifetime smoker who would not give up smoking, so it was kind of a suicide. But um, no, one's life changes as you get older. I am now over 80, an age that no member of my family, I guess my grandmother got that far, but no one else has. She took no exercise and ate everything. I hope I inherited her, her genetic uh, capacity. Each season brings with it its own horrors. That's what I was going to say. Each season brings with it its own rewards. There are no rewards for antiquity. There is just regret. Sometimes I see in uh, around Hollywood, Bel Air, Beverly Hills, I see Mrs. Ronald Reagan. We'd been at the same school together back in the 30s in Washington, D.C. She was living with an aunt who was an actress, or her mother, I guess, was an actress. And we were talking about loss, and she suddenly turned to me and said, don't you hate it when people say, time heals all wounds? And I said, you bet I do, because as we know, time only reminds you of what you lost, uh, which is not a plus. I'm very excited by stupidity. You know, needless to say, I'm in an orgasmic state in America at any time. Just listening to the administration's lies was just so reviving for me. I mean, have they got a new one? Have they got a new spin on an old lie? When they do, they have this furtive look on their faces. What, what, I, uh, what I did is for a while I was on a, a chat group called The Well, and I actually started a blog just trying to find out what was the spin or the lie of the day? <laughs> you know, what, what were they going to pull this day? What were they going to pull the next? And it was always something new and generally from, I don't want to say from left field, usually from right field. <laughs> yes. Well, they, they certainly have a lot of energy. And what's fascinating, because I've been getting around the country. I've, I was down in Texas for a bit. Austin and around there. Austin's a wonderful town and quite liberal by Texas standards, I suppose. And then I was all over California raising money for the Democrats in the last uh, few months. And, you know, the people is all, are always on to what's wrong. I mean, they figure it out. They, they know they're being lied to. But they've been somehow conned into thinking they all do it. Well, not everybody tells lies. Or our elections have always been crooked. Well, they haven't always been crooked. They have often been very honest ones where the voice of the people does get heard. Our Constitution is no great help because of the Electoral College, which was put in there to make sure that the will of the people could never be translated into a presidency. They have the means to just switch it off legally, alas. But that could be changed. I think part of the problem may be that people still think that the mainstream media is honest. Could that be it? I don't think they believe that. I mean, there's something more fundamentally wrong, which is that the only art form that the United States has ever created was the television commercial. And that's the only thing in which passion goes and, you know, and great money goes. Great skill, great art sometimes. Every child in the country is brought up with TV commercials. And the first thing he's told when he wants to send away for the, that wonderful ring that makes you invisible, no, 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 that's just, it's all made up. None of this is true. 
Well, the first thing you see that, uh, and advertisers know this, in the early days of live television, which I wrote a lot of back in the 50s, uh, I used to talk to the advertiser. I said, how do you hook people on some of these god-awful products you're selling? They said, well, we do it largely through the children. We take a nursery rhyme, a nursery song, and we, we put our message into it. So they start by knowing Rinso White, Rinso White, Rinso White. And then we extrapolate from there and we get the message through. So the child is our messenger. The child sooner or later is told that he's not going to get a magic ring and it's all untrue. Well, from that moment on, is he going to believe anything he sees on the bar? And then when he realizes that presidents are packaged the same way uh, detergents are, I should think total cynicism probably strikes his tiny heart. Perhaps. On the other hand, I trained my dog to go to her bed by saying, go to your bed and giving her a treat. I stopped giving her a treat. She kept going to her bed. She's sleepy. Have you considered sleeping sickness in the canine world? In your book, you talk a lot about various people that you've met, various things that you've done. I'd like to ask you about a few of the things you don't go into depth about. Did you know the Beals from Grey Gardens? No. You never met them? Never met them. Did you ever hear anything from uh, Jackie or anybody oh, about yeah. them? Very eccentric, she said. You were in a movie called Bob Roberts, playing, I believe, a senator. Did you write your own dialogue in that? Yeah. Uh, we improvised everything. It was Tim Robbins is wonderful with improvisation. He was starring and directing and writing. All of our scenes together were improvised, and most, most of mine were otherwise. It's great fun working that way, and it gives you, what, what do you get the character better? You also were in uh, several other films. You were in Igby Goes Down in Gattaca. Well, Iggy Goes Down was written and directed by my nephew. As a talisman, he wanted Uncle Gore to play the uh, headmaster of St. Albans School in Washington, from which I think he had been kicked out, and which I had left to go to Exeter. But practically the whole family, we were all brought up in Washington, D.C., and uh, we'd all gone to St. Albans. So I play a schmarmy headmaster. You also got a credit, uh, a special thanks for the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. They shot a lot of it in my house in Ravello, so that was they were thanking me for the house. You were uncredited as a writer of a movie called The Sicilian. Yeah, and I sued the Writers Guild too. The Writers Guild, they they make their decisions on, uh, well, who knows how they really make them, but uh, uh, constitutionally by the Writers Guild Constitution, three members of the guild. Uh, We'll just determine who wrote a script. So they get the first draft, the second draft, third draft, however many there are. Then they award credit generally to the first person to have worked on it, which seemed fair at the time. And then, of course, because too many brothers-in-law were given credits that they didn't deserve. It started out as a good idea, and it became corrupted. So having been cheated out of the uh, credit for Ben-Hur, which was written over half by me and the rest by Christopher Fry. But I was then a New York writer, and he was a British writer. And uh, they didn't feel they should bother with us. And there was a contract guy at Metro who claimed he'd been sending scripts to Zimbalist in Rome, which he had not been doing. And Zimbalist, in any case, had died. This is why there was all the trouble over it, because only he knew who had written what and when and where and why. He died during the filming, right? During the filming, yeah. Wonderful guy. And there would have been no trouble had he lived. But they pulled a fast one. I didn't do anything about it then. 
then I was asked to help out on the Sicilian, which was being shot not far from where I lived, down in Palermo. So I did a, you have to do a total rewrite. They think, oh, you come in and change but to and, and, you know, that's a rewrite. So they did it to me a second time, and I got Bert Fields, the best lawyer in town, and I took the guild to court. The guild fought back and spread a lot of lies about me. The decision of the first court handed me the victory. The guild was then very upset and went to a higher court, I think the California Supreme Court, and a lady justice wrote a brilliant piece saying normally this court does not deal in labor disputes, and this is a labor dispute. But she said in the case of a writer, she said, uh, particularly for films, a credit is his livelihood, and to have it done under star chamber circumstances is a bad thing. And so we think that it should be, any writer should have the right to confront those who made a decision against him or even for him, and find out what it was all about. So I won that one hands down. The Writers Guild has never acknowledged this decision of the court. And I asked Fields, I said, well, how do they get around it? I mean, they, they've been ordered to let it, everybody hmm. find out who, who was the judge. And Fields said, well, it's probably in the contract that writers have to sign with the Guild. They'll be, you know, never work for Dino De Laurentiis. And then under that, and totally ignore the Supreme Court decision 3845. <laughs> so that's the way it's done. I don't know if that's done like that, but that's... That's what it sounds like. Sounds like, yeah. Uh, you also worked on the screenplay of a Tennessee Williams play called The Seven Descents of Myrtle. Yes, which I did not want to do. It was a terrible play. But he was an old friend, and um, somebody involved in the production was a friend of mine. But I s certainly didn't want any credit on that if I could get away from it. And uh, I guess I did get credit, since you know about it. The movie was eventually called The Last of the Mobile Hotshots. Yeah, it certainly was the last. <laughs> then, of course, is the infamous Caligula. If someone was to rent that, how much of Gore Vidal actually appeared on the screen? Well, a surprising amount. You see, we got a wonderful cast. This is when it was a serious movie, before Guccione of Penthouse fame took it over. So we'd gotten Malcolm McDowell, we got John Gilgood, we got Helen Mirren, who's probably going to get the Academy Award this year for her performance as Elizabeth II. And we had a wonderful cast, all in the strength of the script. Then suddenly, Mr. Penthouse enters and fills the thing with Penthouse pets. So it becomes a joke movie. It cost me a lot of money to get my name off, and then they still go on and say, based on a screenplay by Gore Vidal. Well, it isn't really, but... Some of the dialogue is still there, and scenes that, that work very interestingly. I left the right. second uh, Guccione arrived. I said, this is going to be the mess of all time, and I don't want any part of it. And I got a lawyer, and I got my name off, but they managed to slither it in. Have you ever had any interest? Did you ever have any interest no. in directing a film? No. It's, just, it's, it's so boring. I think if you're really film mad and power mad, it's a suitable occupation. I mean, I've known some brilliant people who were directors, like Orson Welles, but uh, by and large, it's not for me. What happened to the book creation, and uh, apparently you've revised it? Well, I had an editor who, just, who hated it and cut it to shreds, and I restored it, yeah. The paperback edition now is the final one, and it's a permanent bestseller in England. Uh, it's never had much of an audience here because... 
we have a new wrinkle in the readers of America is nobody wants to read a book about something they don't know about. Now, if you only want to know about what you already know, you're already around the bend. A book that changed me, changed my life in a lot of the way I looked at the world, I read as a teenager, and I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who read the same book as a teenager and was changed in the same way, and that was Julian. At the time it came out, I know that the New York Times... Part of the blackout. It's a very anti-Christian book. What was the response to that? Did they just ignore that fact? Well, it was the number one bestseller in the United States in the Herald Tribune. Uh, the New York Times, still pursuing its vendetta against me, uh, wouldn't list it on their, on their list, but Publishers Weekly and Herald Tribune put it as number one. So it was a very popular book and has been in a dozen countries, in a dozen languages. You know, it it's seems to be a permanent interest. Given the nature of the book and given the nature of the United States, it runs, seems to run counter to the propaganda. This is not a Jesus-loving country at all. Otherwise, it would be really unbearable. Uh, never underestimate the hypocrisy of the Americans, particularly when they start to talk about uh, religion. I used to bring down the house and the best man when it was the first time on Broadway. And the bad guy was something, somebody sort of like Nixon, played by Frank Lovejoy. And when the old president says, the old president's dying, Jim or whatever the guy's name was, do you believe in God? And he said, yeah. And every, the audience has seen he's one of the worst people on earth. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm really a very religious kind of guy, in a funny way. <laughs> the house always broke up on that. I don't know. We had sophisticated audiences back then. As watching the movie the other day, it struck me that there was also a trace of Bobby Kennedy, I think, in The Bad Guy. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, there was. There was the bad Bobby, and then there was St. Bobby. But that didn't follow until he was assassinated. When you knew him, did you only see the bad Bobby? Pretty much. Pretty much. I didn't like him. He was the enforcer for Jack. You know, Jack had to be the good guy, and everybody had to love him. Bobby had the unpleasant job of dealing with people. Were you surprised by the transformation? No. I understand public relations pretty well. What kind of president would he have been? I should think pretty nondescript. Well, he had really very little preparation for it. And uh, as Jack used to say when people would complain to Jack about Bobby, and Jack was, you know, he was on to his whole family, including his father. But he said, you know, Bobby's a policeman. And if he hasn't arrested somebody that day, he goes home at night and arrests Rose. You've known some extraordinary people over the years, and uh, they pop up in your book, uh, particularly people like Tennessee Williams, the bird, as you call him, Christopher Isherwood. You knew Garbo pretty well in her 60s. Yes, he was wonderful. Very funny woman, too. I was surprised. She, she never did want to quit Hollywood. She just kind of... She was fired by Howard Hughes. It's the only interesting thing about Howard Hughes, and of course, what's-his-name left it out of the movie, Scorsese, and he must know the story. Hughes had bought uh, RKO. First thing he did, she was supposed to make a picture there with Walter Wanger producing it, the Duchesse de Langeais, and uh, Hughes didn't like Garbo. He wasn't going to make a Garbo picture. That was that. How did you determine what you were going to put in palimpsest or point-to-point navigation? Was it just as the memories cropped up? Pretty much. You have to leave something to your unconscious to do, <laughs> otherwise it gets irritable. Do you ever look at that in either of those books and think, God, you know, it's not really a whole book, but there's something great that I should have had in but don't? I don't do regrets. 
In terms of the last chapter in which you discuss biographical material and other views, sitting in my closet somewhere, I haven't read it, is a copy of the biography by Fred Kaplan. Should I toss that? Should I read it? What's the story on that? Well, he sort of gets everything wrong. It was an authorized biography, and he pretended it wasn't, which was an act of total bad faith. And I could have canceled the book right then and there, even though he'd finished it. But it had been commissioned by Doubleday, and I was moving from Random House to Doubleday, and it was just not exactly appropriate to uh, end up by making them cancel a book. So I just let it go, and there it is, full of errors. It was a bad choice. On my head, obviously. Do you recognize yourself in the book at all, except in some sort of strange way? Or? Well, I recognize what he's taken from Palimpsest, yes. All the personal stuff in there is taken from, from me. Where else would he get it? I was not about to talk to him about these matters, nor of much of anybody else. Does that change your view of biography in general? How, how can you trust biography at that point? I mean, you worked with biographies in writing. Burr and in writing most of your historical novels. Well, you have no choice. I've written several times about John Hay, who was one of Abraham Lincoln's private secretaries, and then later in life he was Secretary of State under Theodore Roosevelt. There are two major biographies that everybody has to use on John Hay. He's not very much written about. Each of them has a wrong birth date for him. Well, how do you find out which is the right one? I'm not about to go to Warsaw, Indiana, or wherever it was he was born, and go through old ledgers. I mean, that's not my job. I'm not writing a proper biography of John Hayes, an incidental character. But if a secretary of state is not correctly dated, what else, what else is wrong in these things? And look at the way history is taught in the schools. Once a year, I think it was Purdue used to do a study of high school students across the country. What did they like most about uh, the classroom? What subjects did they like and so on? The one subject they all hated was American history. Now that's about the most interesting thing about the United States is our history. So for a bunch of school teachers to have made that totally boring, it took genius of a high order. But it's because they can't tell the truth. They're doing commercials for the Imperial Republic. And everything we do is wonderful and we're beloved everywhere because we are an example to the world. What if you tell enough lies, you'll become. Makes you wonder about even going back to ancient Roman times. Well, the Romans were very much aware of it. I mean, Tacitus is always, in a sense, contradicting Suetonius, who's more of a gossip man. And Tacitus is more of the larger picture. You know, the, the Romans had a very good idea of what was history and what should be recorded. There are, there are Roman writers that you trust automatically. I mean, in a case like Cicero, who was a very vain man, but brilliant man, a great writer. And you know that sooner or later he's going to mention when he was consul. It was his great highest achievement as a politician. And sooner or later he's going to tell an anecdote about how much Julius Caesar really admired him and always praised his consulate. Cicero always brings it in. Well, it's kind of endearing. At least that's autobiography. It's not someone else saying what happened in someone's life. And getting it wrong. Gore Vidal... In a very broad sense, looking towards, say, the next 20 or 30 years of potential American history, assuming that the waves don't completely wash over us or North Korea or uh, Jeb Bush doesn't bomb us, where do you see this country going? I see us headed for insolvency at the moment. 
Apparently, we don't have enough money legitimately to service the debt, which is paying the interest on the treasuries that Japan and China now own, which means, in a sense, they own the United States. So we will run out of money, which will bring on a depression of some kind. Inflation is already starting here. We're up to, I think, 2.1% now. And we've been holding pretty well, considering the crazy expenditures for wars, illegal wars. I think we'll be out of the war business in the next few years. We don't have the troops, don't have the money. Probably the people don't have the will, though the ownership of the country does have the will. So it'll be a struggle between them and us. And I think us will win this time around. Are we going to get back the old republic? Probably not. Those things don't come back. Once you have done as much damage as these people have done, you can't reconstitute. Good word, by the way. You don't reconstitute a constitution that has been torn up, that piece of paper so disdained by W. Bush. You'll get something new. I can't think what. They have the means of control. You know, we have more people in prison than any country in history. It's 2.2 million as we, you and I chat here. 2.2 million. These are people's lives that have been thrown away. Many of them are in prison for life because they were caught three times smoking marijuana. What a stupid country to allow a law like that. We will suffer for our stupidity. We already have the contempt of the rest of the world, which doesn't bother us because we don't know anything about the rest of the world. That's part of our general dumbness, so we know that we are the most envied people on earth. I always say, yeah, and that everybody wants to come here and live. And I say, well, when's the last time you saw a Norwegian with a green card? There's nobody from a real country south of the border, yeah. We wreck their economies, and then they come up as sweated laborer for us. But we are no longer a place that people want to go to, and I don't see that changing very much. So we must change ourselves. What was that beautiful line of Rilke? In honor of the god Apollo, but you must change your life. And it's, it's a riveting line, particularly where it comes, uh, quite a beautiful poem. Well, we must change our lives, and that is not going to be easy. One final question. Are you working on any other book? Are you working on essays right now? Yeah, I think I'm doing a couple of essays. And uh, I think about it. The one thing I didn't cover in my history of the United States through those novels like Burr and Lincoln, I skipped probably one of the most interesting phases, which is around 1846, when we attacked Mexico in order to get our hands on California. And there were marvelous characters then. There's Henry Clay, there's the young Abraham Lincoln. And I've thought if I have the energy, those books take a lot of energy, I'd fill in that missing place because so much of what we are now was forged then. And so much of the ambivalence of, of Lincoln about the Civil War came from his having been a young congressman at that time. And then the, imagine the greatest thing said about the Mexican War was Ulysses S. Grant, our greatest general, the winner of the Civil War. And Grant said in later life, after he was a disastrous president, but he was a great man and a great general, and he had been a young second lieutenant out of West Point at the Battle of Veracruz in Mexico. And he said, I think that nations like individuals must repent and must suffer for their sins. I have always thought that for our vicious attack upon Mexico in order to seize land that we could have obtained 
by lawful means something in the tradition of the worst European empires we had done to a weak neighbor. I think the Civil War was the judgment of God on the United States. That's a way to end an interview. <laughs> well, shall we go back and refight it and let Mexico win this time? I keep thinking, uh, okay, a hundred years later, we've got another judgment. We're going to pay a lot for, for what's going on now. The last six years of Gore Vidal's life after this interview were not good ones. In 2003, three years earlier, his longtime partner Howard Austin died, and a year later, he'd been forced to give up his beloved cliffhanging villa in Ravello on the Amalfi Coast in Italy due to his lack of mobility and he arrived at KPFA in a wheelchair. His last years were further complicated by a neurological disorder, and he died on July 31, 2012 of pneumonia at the age of 86. While collections of essays and interviews have since been published, Point to Point Navigation was his last completed book. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>